when I was a teeny tiny little itty bitty sports collector. If I wanted some baseball cards, I'd go to our local pharmacy, which is called Steinway Drugs, where I'd buy a pack or two or maybe even three of tops, hoping to get some Chicago Cubs cards and a piece of pink rectangular finger quote gum that would not break my teeth. Now, once I got a little older, I'd hit a local card store, and once I got older than that, I'd hit a card show. So those were my options back in the day, the drugstores, the hobby joints, and the shows. Today, cards at drugstores are not a thing unless you count Target as a drugstore, but getting stuff at a local brick and mortar or a collecting convention is. But what if you want a perfectly graded and slabbed Michael Jordan 1986 Fleer, or a pristine Tom Brady 2000 playoff contender? Hell, what if you want a Mark Rothko painting? I mean, I, I want a Mark Rothko painting. Anywho, if you're like me, you won't be able to afford Brady or MJ or Rothko in mint condition, but that doesn't mean you can't get in on the action. Ladies and gentlemen, meet fractional ownership, a very 22nd century way to collect this. Welcome to Collect This, powered by CSG, your go-to sports card grading company. Here's your host, Alan Goldscher. All right, we got some heavy hitters today. We've got Evan Beard, Executive VP of Masterworks. We got Ezra Levine, CEO of Collectible. And we got Rob Petrozo, Co-Founder and Chief Product Officer of Rally. Bunch of high power guys, all slumming it here on Collect This. Thank you so much for taking the time. We're going to go around the table in alphabetical order. We'll start with you, Evan. Uh, ex- fractional ownership, you know, to you, is a concept that's second nature, right? You've been doing it for years now. You know it back and forth. Tell me, if you were explaining to a newbie, what fractional ownership is, how would you do so? We're going to go around the table on this. I'm going to ask the same question to each of you. There might be some overlap, and that's cool. That'll give us, I think, a really nice snapshot of what fractional ownership is. Go, Evan. Look, for us, it's just taking a an asset class that was hitherto um, uninvestable for 99.9% of humanity because the value <laughs> of blue chip art is so expensive and allowing you to get exposure to it by investing in a share of a work of art. So think of a, a $10 million Rothko. Uh, up until a few years ago, the only way to get a, a great Rothko on the wall is to have, you know, be a centimillionaire or a billionaire. Now you can get exposure to this asset class by buying shares in this same Rothko and having economic exposure to it. I think, um, yeah, that, that's very understandable, very simple, very to the point. Ezra, what do you got? You going to add to that? Yeah, no, I think I think that's really, really well said. You know, I think when people think fractional ownership and collectibles, they often overcomplicate it. In reality, it's really applying, you know, a, a thesis and a, a market structure that exists and that's widely understood in the public markets. It's really just creating a little mini company out of collectibles and selling shares in that uh, little mini company housed by the asset to the public. So mm-hmm. now you can own Rothko's, you can own Mantles, you can own, you know, essentially every category as well on Rally Road and collectible and masterworks in the same way that you could buy shares of a stock. I think that's probably the most simplistic way to put it is now you can own shares of collectibles in the same way you can own shares of publicly traded stocks. Okay, Rob, so you're talking to my nine-year-old daughter, Zoe, right? And she says, hey, Rob, what's fractional ownership? Daddy tried to explain it, but he did a really lousy job. How would you go about telling her? 
I, I do a lousier job, I think. But in reality, I'm talking <laughs> to a decent amount of nine and nine, the nine to 17 year old window. When I talk to like little cousins and like friends, kids, it feels like the uh, I'm always explaining it to them more than to their parents. Uh-huh. So I'll say it like this. The way we've always looked at it is kind of um, I'll give the, the very high level. It's turning aspirations into equity. And I think we've always looked at it like there are these things that everyone cares about. It might be if you're a nine year old, it might be a doll that you have. It might be a show that you've seen or some sort of media empire that you follow through Disney or another category. You could have that Genesis moment and you could do it. At a, at a price point that's approachable to you or to anybody, that's what fractional and that's what kind of we've tried to build. To me, it's this, the idea that, you know, when you're younger, you have these things you care about. When you're older, you realize how much they've appreciated potentially, how much they matter to you. You can own that moment. And whether that was art or even real estate or some of the things that are less sort of aspirational, but obvious investments to a lot of people, or it's cards and collectibles, it's all part of that same ethos. Good stuff, Rob. Uh, in reverse alphabetical order now, so we're going to stick with you. What is Rally? Talk to me about Rally, because now that we know what fractional ownership is, we need to know what we can do with it. Yeah. So, I mean, the pitch, the pitch for us has always been sort of, you know, buy, sell, trade equity shares in the rarest assets in the world. And that's everything on Rally from, from trading cards to, to digital collectibles like blue chip NFTs, to dinosaur fossils, so this whole diversified portfolio. And that to us is the goal is create this 21st century portfolio. So when we started mm-hmm. this pitch in 2016, we saw this world that I think people are starting to see now where you're going to have your Robinhood account for your stocks or your Schwab or your TD, whatever it is, you'll have Coinbase for your crypto assets. Rally we've always looked at as for everything else and that's every asset we still believe that we're building that every day across all these asset classes but in reality it's anything that you care about that has a history of returns or has some sort of history of relevance it's relevant now and it will be in the future we want to put that in your portfolio so that's what we've tried to to create on rally and in the sort of the the 15 second quick pitch now uh, uh, the many cool one of the many cool things about that is i'm a sports guy right and having access to things like the books i'm a writer so i loves me some books like the cars i don't drive but you know it'd be cool to have a piece of a cool car that is exciting to me uh collectible is super exciting to me because it is a sports the sports platform um ezra talk a little bit about what within the sports space you guys do yeah, so you know we we started out exclusively focused on sports. You know we've uh, you know we, we we launched in September of 2020 and completed over 50 million dollars in sports specific offerings on on collectible everything from cards, memorabilia, tickets, photographs, you name it. We've done it as long as it's been sports specific. So really exciting. We you know we started with sports. We believe sports is a very interesting vertical. Obviously, you know you're starting to see a lot of press being kind of driven towards the realm of sports by some estimates. It's you know, it's scheduled to grow into a two hundred and you know thirty billion dollar category just sports alone over the next you know five to ten years. Obviously, some you know real whales have come into the space as of late. We saw the first you know record eight figure sale in sports collectibles, a Mickey Mantle card, which is really bringing a lot of attention. I think for for the longest time, sports collectibles probably were not given the respect that it deserved. Mm-hmm. When you think about sports, sports is the most populous out of any collectible categories, and yet the prices were not really reflective of that i do believe that the narrative of sports collectibles you know as almost fine art we've heard that narrative being spun numerous times over the last yep. couple you know weeks after the sale of the mantle and i believe that to be true there's no reason why you know a sports card should not be considered fine art there's no reason why you know game use memorabilia that was worn and really you know the fabric that was actually worn during iconic memories that people really remember should not be considered fine art right so this is art as well and i think i think that that's really starting to be reflected in both price points but also interest in the category at large. 
Yeah, that's a great point, Ezra. That Mantle card, the 1952 Mantle card that did sell for uh, over $12 million. Uh, boy, we're recording this in uh, September, the beginning of September. It just sold very recently. That piece is beautiful. It is a piece of art, right? You put that on your wall. And it's just going to look amazing right next to the Banksy's and the Rothko's and the Picasso's that you can get at Masterworks. Uh, Evan, talk a little bit about, do a deep dive into the kind of art that you guys go for. It's the highest of the high. Yeah, look, this is, uh, there's a lot of art, and probably 1.7 trillion in art appraised sitting in private collections around the world. And, you know, a decent amount of it trades. We look at the million plus space. So we're looking at objects that are valued between a million and $30 million. And this is a market driven by about two to 300 individuals globally. Mm-hmm. And it's a market driven by strange economic uh, factors. It's not always supply and demand. It's, it's more about status and power and prestige and aesthetic interest and art historical uh, importance. And uh, when you have those kind of economic drivers, that means that this is an asset class that tends to be uncorrelated with traditional, uh, more um, economic-driven asset classes like stocks, bonds, you right. name it. So what we're really trying to do is get the small investor access to a segment of the economy that has very unique properties and is driven by very strange and uncorrelated economic dynamics. Mm-hmm. Uh, one word, Ezra, that you always like to use is uh, democratization. I think that's a really important uh, important point to make when you're discussing fractional. Uh, Ezra, staying with you, um, it, you your path to where you're at right now, right? You have a background in collecting and you have a background in finance. So it's kind of like, this is your dream job. How'd you get to your dream job? <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. I mean, you know, I think, I think with collectibles, oftentimes there's, you know, a real, a real familial path for me. It was, it was through my dad who was a big collector. And so I always grew up collecting, you know, like a lot of kids in America collecting trading cards, but really my, my love of it comes from the fact that my dad loved it. And he really sort of taught me the ropes and showed me how fun it could be. You know, the relationships he built through it, it, it always really appealed to me. So when the opportunity came to leave, you know, my role in finance and, and operating, you know, a different business to come join the collectible space, I saw it as an opportunity and, uh, you know, an area that was really ripe for innovation. And, you know, I, I want to give a huge hat tip to, you know, both Rally and Masterworks for really being, you know, true, you know, true pioneers along with collectible in this category. I think we're all building something really special and, you know, certainly, you know, a massive secular trend that I, I fully anticipate, uh, you know, being relevant, not just today, but probably, you know, for, you know, for the very foreseeable future when it comes to collectibles, it really makes sense. And it really, I think, I think the collectibles industry really needs fractionalization to succeed in order to continue really, you know, to, to becoming more and more prominent. When you think about, mm-hmm. you know, the areas of opportunity, I mean, I think one big thing, and I'd love to hear, you know, from Rob and Evan as well. I mean, I think market liquidity is probably the the biggest challenge when it comes to collectibles. I mean, everyone's saying, you know, that a massive amount of art is really controlled by hundreds of collectors, right? And so I think, you know, the market really needs fractional, which really just means anyone can participate to not only support liquidity, but also also to support, you know, kind of higher price points over time. And so I think that's something that we're really excited about is not just the ability to provide democratized access to give everyone the ability to participate, um, but also to increase market liquidity and regulation and transparency. I think these are things that are vitally important for collectibles to really be uh, not just looked at, but also you know, adopted as a true legitimate alternative asset class. 
Evan, uh, you two come from the financial world, but within that space, you were doing some kind of art stuff. Take us through that that route to Masterworks. Yeah, look, I, I was leading a large um, art lending book at a major financial institution. So at Bank of America, we had a business where we lent against uh, portfolios of art. And it was about a $10 billion art lending book. And that was in itself, you know, a form of liquidity for the market. You know, I just shifted to the other side of the balance sheet. And what we're doing here now is we're buying, you know, valuable art, putting it on our platform and enabling investors. And we have about 500,000 registered on our platform. You know, they can get exposure to this asset class in that way. Rob, your route to rally was a lot more circuitous uh, than um, than Ezra to collectible and Evan to masterworks. Um, and, and to an extent, that might be reflected in the differentiation of your offerings, right? You're just not focusing on art. You're not focusing on sports. You're focusing on a lot of different stuff. Does that stem from the fact that you do have a kind of a, a twisty, turny uh, professional journey? Yeah, probably. I mean, I think a lot of it, not that dissimilar from uh, from Ezra. When I first started to understand what collecting was, it was in the 90s. And it was a situation where, hey, that's the wrong era to be collecting trading cards and comic books and a few other things where there's tens of millions of copies of everything being made. But in Brooklyn at the time, there were a ton of card shops and comic book shops. And there was a show every weekend, either like in a mall or in a church basement. There was always something going on around collecting to a certain degree. And that's when you start to care about sports and you start to really pay attention to like the way things look and feel. But I think the problem back then and what led to kind of to rally into this whole fractional world kind of being born for a lot of people is that back then it's like, you know, you think Greg Jeffries and Frank Thomas are going to pay for college and you start thinking things <laughs> like, you know, the comic book where Superman dies, where they made six million copies is a thing to hold on to. You pay four bucks. I'm going to get four million back for it someday. And you and your friends pull money together and you're buying, you know, Fleer Ultra boxes thinking a Shaq rookie is the golden ticket. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what the problem was at the time. It was this idea that that retail and a regular person had no chance at getting the best stuff. There was an information asymmetry. The Internet didn't exist the way it does now. The idea of art and real estate being the place to put money made sense. But someone like me was going to inevitably buy, you know, a fake Warhol sketch because that's all you know but until you do the research <laughs> to really understand it. So when we started thinking about, when I started thinking about my future and my career, it was based in design. I was a designer. I, I went to school for fine art. I thought I was going to be a, a working artist when I got out of school, and that's not a job. You learn that really, really quickly. And then you start thinking about like where your career path takes you. I used design to get to startups and to work for a couple banks and be in these places where there was this mix of money and things people cared about. I started talking with my co-founders, Chris and Max, in 2014, 2015, just general conversation about what we were all doing. We wanted to work mm -hmm. together on something. Max came from a financial background. Chris was an operator. I was a designer and worked on product. We just started thinking about all these missed opportunities that we had in the spaces and the things that we collected. And then it became the aha moment where it was, all right, now the information asymmetry isn't the same as it once was. You can find out as much information about these things as you want. You're in right. conversation. And to Ezra's point, the liquidity around the assets and the investments <clears throat> is something that's still being worked on. But the liquidity and the conversation around those things that he really cared about was massive. And it's in every text conversation. Anytime there was a huge new auction result, everybody's talking about it. The things you collect and that you want are in every conversation around you. We thought if we could take that and turn it into something that mimics some of the dynamics of the stock market and have something where you can own those pieces that matter to you that might be the PSA 2 or the PSA 3 version of a card, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. invest in the museum quality version, then we'd be onto something. We felt like we could open up this industry. And that's kind of what happened. Now, seven years later, it's something that's a little bit more ubiquitous. But back then, nobody understood it. It was the haves and the have-nots. Merging that, and even though, even if they're 
we looked at a world where the master works, the collectibles, and all these things that can exist with Rally as part of the ecosystem. And you have all these buyers who aren't just going to an auction, putting up their hand and spending $20 million. That was like the journey and the aha moment, because I think it affects everybody similarly, whether it's a high price point or a low price point, the things you care about and the best versions, there's a massive disconnect there. And we're all kind of working on a way to sort of make that, to, to narrow that gap a little bit. So, Rob, to your point about um, coexisting in the ecosystem, a little uh, inside baseball right here. All you guys are nodding at what everybody else is saying. You guys are like the most friendly finger quote competitors ever. Um, Ezra, this is and this is something when I discuss fractional, uh, I get asked a lot. Um, How do you get your stuff? Well, to, to Rob's point, I, I, I love the way Rob framed that, right? That, you know, that, you know, I remember when I first left finance for collectibles, it wasn't long ago, it was probably two years ago, right? And I would tell my friends and my family, hey, look, I'm leaving the world of hedge funds, which was, you know, very prominent. And everyone, when you said hedge funds, people, you know, even if they didn't know what it meant, they just said, wow, that sounds impressive to go work in collectibles. And they looked, they looked at me like I was a three-headed monster. And now <laughs> the, the perception of collectibles, I, I, I'd be curious if Rob and Evan agree with this. I think the perception of collectibles is very different. When you tell someone you work in collectibles, there's a cool factor. There's totally. you know, a nostalgia factor. There's like a, an understanding factor that really wasn't there long ago. And I think to Rob's point and to Evan's points as well, that this is what you're starting to see. You're starting to see mainstream adoption. You're starting to see understanding. You're starting to see intrigue. And you're starting to really understand in the numbers, right, that investing in collectibles or collecting, however you want to frame it, it's something that's been has been done for a long time by the ultra high net worth. It just really was never really available to people, you know, in mass. And that's really the issue that I think Masterworks Rally and Collectible are all trying to solve. And you know, from collectibles vantage point, we, we've been very consistent with this. We we don't look at any other fractional player as as competition. In fact, uh, we actually look at it and think about it at least from our lens as almost competition, right? In the sense where, yeah, you know, we all there's a huge pie out there for all of us to capture together and i think you know the three of us here probably you know i think we're all pretty biased in saying this but i think the three platforms you have on this call are the three best platforms that exist bar none period and that's why i reached out to you guys you guys all have the game so so going back to the to the initial question which i ain't mad that you went off on a tangent because it was a good tangent um how do you get your stuff and i i think it's a really you know the stuff you guys get across the board the three of these companies is redonkulous it's a, a just rare great condition amazing this stuff doesn't just fall out of the sky Ezra. how how do you how does it land in your lap yeah you know look i think i think for a couple of reasons i mean one is is collectible you know being being category specific you know we develop a really good relationships across the board with dealers and consigners and collectors and athletes and agencies and you know from a whole host of other places and you know and so it's really through those relationships primarily that we're able to get great stuff and then you know we have a team that is dedicated on filtering out all the things we get we take a very small percentage of the ones that you know kind of come inbound to us we're looking for probably the same things rally and masterworks are looking for we're looking for historical and cultural relevance we're looking for appreciation potential we're looking at things that we think you know have kind of broad-based appeal and um, you know and, and that's and that's pretty much it but it's primarily you know our model is primarily consignment driven uh and um and that's and that's what we've done so far today uh, how about you over at Masterworks, Evan? How do you end up with a, with a big old Banksy? That's just like, that's crazy. A Banksy, people, a Banksy. 
Look, we have a pretty big data analytics team. So we start with um, the data we've put together, both um, market and artist level indices. We track repeat sales regression on all of this. We sort of, we've come up with a list of artists that we want to be in the market on and we want to go deep on. And then we have a, a sizable acquisitions team that are they're in the market with collectors, with dealers, mm-hmm. you know, sourcing at auction through creative deal structures. And, and then we have an independent in-house appraisal team that's doing fair market value on everything that comes. And we get shown uh, you know, over a billion dollars worth of art every single month because we mm. have a lot of capital. And uh, and we're very selective. And you know, we, we put a painting on the platform every five days. So the chances of my daughter getting uh, uh, one of her pictures on the platform is kind of slim. That's what you're telling yeah, me. Yeah, we'll, we'll look at it, but you're right. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Um, Rob, you guys uh, arguably have the most difficult uh, climb on this because you do have so many classes within the rally world. Um, how do you get your stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's not that it's not that dissimilar than what was just described on both counts. I think that, you know, we have a, we have an in-house acquisition team that's always looking at a million different data points and thousands of assets every week. And those are like, you know, our mercenaries on the ground. They can be doing quant at, at a million different hedge funds, but they're the people that kind of look at it from a numbers perspective. And then we have a team here that's part of this operations group that we have that's always looking at and tracking relevance. And that's not just now. It's making the, the, the data backed. It, the data back decisions that match with intuition about what's relevant now, but what will be relevant in the future. So if something mm-hmm. like a Disney asset comes inbound, that's a franchise and it's a product and it's it's something that's being put out that we're confident will withstand the test of time and will withstand individual fluctuations in market. And that's something that we always look at too. But then there are situations where there's one-offs and we have a huge sort of team of a, a giant network of advisors and friends of the company, people who are sourcing on our behalf all over the world at all times. Mm-hmm. And those are some of the biggest names in each individual vertical. So while we get all this stuff sort of you know inbound on our plate there are times where we're looking for something specific so we go into dinosaurs for example and that was a space we were looking at for a long time we were trying to track things for two or three years you really want to understand what the bone density is of an individual asset you want to understand where it came from what the provenance is what the history of that individual asset is what the history of that category is at auction there are all these elements that go into it so it took us a year and a half two years to really get our head around that in a meaningful way to find what we consider to be one of the best triceratops skulls on earth and when we had that relationship already set up and we kind of had our feet on the ground. We had the data-driven method. We had the intuition that went with it. And we had an expert in the field who was literally, you know, in a quarry in, in North Dakota digging up bones, said this wow. is the one. When all those kind of matched, that becomes an automatic for us. And if it's something that we can buy opportunistically, we'll use capital. We'll use our credit line. We'll use the, the money that we have in our accounts. Or we'll always sort of think about things in a way that if consignment makes the most sense for an investor, we'll do that. But we want to make sure that we have our sort of, you know, we have our arms out in a bunch of different assets classes with the smartest people in those asset classes that were in a position to make quick acquisitions on behalf of the users. So have you ever had a photo match dinosaur? <laughs> yeah, uh, the the technically yes, but technically that, yes you know, to, to go to, but the, it's sixty million years of history prior to that photo being taken. Yeah. I would say. <laughs> um, all right, let's talk sports for a second, Ezra. So sports is a big deal in the fractional space. What what is it about sports? Like you are able to have an entire company devoted just to sports, primarily cards, mostly cards. What is it about that that particular class that is so appealing to fractional investors? 
Yeah, I think it probably starts at, you know, just a basic understanding of what it is, right? I think all of us would probably agree that when people understand something or they're educated or they've experienced collecting or investing something, they're probably more likely to do it than if it's completely novel to them and they have to learn everything from scratch. So, so I think I think most most people have some experience, whether, you know, directly or indirectly or family member who once collected sports cards. Sports cards are pretty liquid, you know, by collectible standards, pretty liquid instrument, you know, and I'd give a lot of credit to the grading companies, CSG obviously is starting to emerge Ooh. as a leader, uh, you know, in grading as well. But you have PSA and Beckett and SGC who've, you know, created a numeric grading standard that really makes cards pretty transactable as a commodity and, mm-hmm. and thus pretty liquid. So, you know, I think I think it's probably just you know the fact that it's standardized really makes cards you know liquid and obviously you know they're easy to to maintain and store and insure. I think all that helps as well. But you know, when you look at sports, you know, again as I said in the previous, you know, in my previous response that, you know, I think sports for the longest time had probably been, you know, underrepresented in the grand scheme of the collectibles, mm-hmm. you know, kind of universe. And you're starting to see, I think, more, you know, more attention flowing in that direction. Obviously, the first eight-figure sports card sale was achieved just a couple weekends ago. Uh, and that is obviously, you know, kind of driven the likes of pretty much every major media outlet in the world covering it. It's Bloomberg, CNN, CNBC, mm-hmm. Cranes, Barron's, you name it. They, they cover this. And I think, you know, that, that, that sort of mainstream, um, you know, that mainstream interest and awareness really helps to drive the, the narrative around sports cards in particular. Evan, one of the most attractive things to sports collectors is a one of one, right? There's only one version of it. There's only one Mickey Mantle card. There's only one Justin Herbert. You can take any any number of uh, great athletes that are appealing to collectors and say, you want to get that one, the, the sole source. That's the deal with all of your art, right? Everything is a one of one. That, I'm guessing, is part of the reason why collectors are so eager to have access to this because there's no, there's not a one of five. It's a one of one. <laughs> no, it, it's a great benefit. And then it creates all kinds of data problems because you're right. Everything is a one of one. So you have to track that one if it has sold multiple times to try and understand its return profile. Or uh, artists have series uh, within their overall OV that people sometimes find more um, commercial or more sought after, et cetera. So uh, we do a lot, we spend a lot of time trying to understand the market return profile of certain segments of both an artist's market, the overall Mm -hmm. art market, Mm -hmm. individual works of art. And this drives a lot of our decision-making. But you're right. I mean, look, it's another reason why it may not uh, have evolved as quickly into a traditional asset class is that heterogeneity makes it very, very difficult to value sometimes. So uh, we're letting folks get access to this and we appraise these things, but then we have a secondary market uh, which is unique. You could actually trade in and out. So you can you know, buy into one of our vehicles, say a, a Banksy or a Monet or a, uh, you know, a, an Albert Olin. Um, and if you need to get out of those shares, you could trade it on our secondary market. And we see the secondary market as a real growth opportunity for us because that has, the art market is famously illiquid. You have to wait for a gallery to represent your work or send it to auction. That could be a six-month cycle. So the ability to get out of your shares is very attractive to some of our collectors. 
Rob, I think you're in the best position uh, of anybody on this uh, on this little roundtable to to look at the take a big picture view of it and and tell us what classes are are getting more traction than than the others. You know, I know sports is hot. I know art is hot. Uh, what else are you seeing um, aside from dinosaurs over at Rally? I think I think what we've seen is there there are two types of tailwinds. One is conversation, and the other is price action. So, mm-hmm. obviously, when you know a Mickey Mantle car prints a, a twelve and a half million dollar price, that's something that transcends asset classes, and it becomes, you know, vintage sports Mickey Mantles, the other one of ones that look that looked at as kind of grail pieces and and sort of top of their class. So the Wayne Gretzky's of the world, and the Babe Ruths, and the Honus Wagners, and you get those sort of all right. There's an era, and there's a type of card that's very specific that just printed this massive price. I'm hearing about this nonstop. Let me go see what's available. So that's kind of like the hot in the moment right now. Mm-hmm. I, not investment advice, obviously. And I, should, I should say that before, all I should say that before we say anything is this is not investment advice. But that said, there's also this idea that that people bring up a lot. And it's it's that, you know, Mickey Mantle's not going to tear his ACL type of thing where you have sort of the greats <laughs> and sort of the vintage Again, games. he's not going to tear it again. He's probably torn it like 18 times when he was playing. Yeah, he probably got diagnosed once during that. Or, during his yeah, career, exactly. Times. But the you're not going to look at that at somebody like that and say, all right, they're going to affect their legacy in any way. That's that's not that's not a net positive. And I think that that's kind of always been drawn from the big prices. Then the other side of it is conversation. So I think that with NFTs, we saw that really early on, maybe seven, eight months ago, when that wave really started to pick up. And you have four mm-hmm. or five companies that are, you know, printing massive prices and huge amounts of volume. But it's also in the conversation. You're getting the te- the the text from your mom. That's that's like, you know, what is a board ape? And that's a conversational piece. That's a relevance <laughs> piece. That to us always drives new traffic. And that. Can that could have a cause and effect right now when you're in a bear market for NFTs and ETH is getting killed and all these people have a negative sentiment around it. It's, it's It may be a bad thing for your investment right now, but it's still in the conversation. So that still gets the type of attention that we see as a net positive if it brings liquidity to a space. And that's part of the ethos of Rally, too. If you come here for Mickey Mantle or for a board ape, there's a good chance that you cross-pollinate and find yourself somewhere else and find yourself in an asset that has similar dynamics or similar appeal. Or mm-hmm. maybe it doesn't, but it's interesting when you start reading the description around it. So we've always tried to track both of those things, that sort of conversational relevance and then price action too. And that always kind of dictates a direction of the most, the most popular assets, I would say. Um, Evan and Ezra, you guys are both uh, knee deep in your respective uh, space, sports and art. Ezra, do you see collectible expanding at any point? Um, because within the sports space, there are so many little mini classes. You got your cards, you got your jerseys, you got your autographs, you got your and new things all the time. Vintage game tickets, magazine covers, et cetera, et cetera. Are you going to just focus on all of these different uh, spaces within the space? Uh, or are you going to try and uh, dip the toe in other uh, in other things? Yeah, look, I think every platform, every company's job is to grow and to expand. And so obviously we'll, we'll, we'll look at opportunities for us to do so. You know, I think, you know, outside of, you know, of expansion, I think there's other ways to expand just our user bases, right. And our reach across the board, across, you know, all platforms, right. You know, one thing, you know, we're, we're looking to do, and I'm sure all platforms looking to do is to expand our geographic footprint today. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. only accepting investments from people here in the U S over the age of 18. Right. I think, you know, there's a real opportunity to expand globally. We know collecting is, you know, real, a real global, uh, you know, kind of, thing right and so i think you'll, you'll certainly see us expand that way you know i think and i think there's real expansion opportunities within you know various partnerships you know we've seen some unbelievable data which suggests you know that you know a broad swath of ultra high net worth and you know investors have a significant percentage of their wealth allocated to you know to collectibles and i think there's there are platforms out there that already have that you know large following both of accredited and non 
private investors of people who are looking for diversified exposure to other asset classes. So I think I think fractional, you know, is very much in its nascency. I think it's very, very early days. I mean, you know, in fractional in particular, I would I still always say I think we're in the bottom of the first inning, right? I think we've seen mm-hmm. good proof of concept from the likes of Masterworks Rally and Collectible, but there's so much. There's so much that uh, can continue to unfold primarily to bring real liquidity into the market. And I think that's really when you're going to see the true power of fractional. Amazing foundation has been built, some amazing early wins on proof of concept, but I think we're still bottom of the first inning here. Uh, What about you, Evan? Is Masterworks thinking of uh, kind of diversifying a little bit, or are you just focused laserly on, uh, on your artwork? I see us staying in the art vertical for some time. And the way we grow there is you're going to see different fund structures, different types of vehicles. Right now, we're primarily a retail self-directed platform. Mm-hmm. You're going to see a big move into the institutional space, um, which we're excited about. And I think as a lot of these institutions, the wirehouses of the world, the family offices, the institutional endowments get more comfortable with fractionalization. It's going to be their own vertical within their portfolio even if it's a one or two percent exposure and that if that happens i mean there's massive growth opportunities there uh and like ezra said international is going to be big for us so we get constant inquiries globally uh so we're we're looking at what jurisdictions and we, we already have international investors on the platform but i think you're going to see us um you know, have ex- you know, grow the team in Asia probably first and then Europe. And you know, we, we definitely will be a global company at some point. All right, guys, let's have a little bit of fun. Um, Evan, a bold prediction for the fractional space year, 10 years, what, something that will blow our minds when you are right about it. <laughs> Yeah, well, one prediction, if we hit this right, right now, we all rely on these appraisal firms based on sort of comps in the market in in the same way that an investment bank would do when they want to sell uh, a company. Uh, if we get this right in the secondary market for, you know, the fractionalized objects that we're all putting out there. There, I think the moonshot is if that daily price discovery in our secondary market starts to be the primary space that mm. the entire market looks to to value objects. So rather yeah. than us going out and finding an appraisal firm, the Christie's and Sotheby's of the world are actually looking to Masterworks and saying, oh, what's it trading at today? Uh, that's the biggest, most immediate indicator of value globally. And if that's the case, then we're kind of at the center of this market and sort the the satellite system revolves around us that is bold ezra can you get that bold or even bolder dare i say i love that answer from evan because i was actually going to go with a very similar answer and yeah i think i think fractional when it matures a little bit will be the leading indicator to auction results as opposed to Mm -hmm. right now at least on a collectible i don't want to speak for any other platform the, the price action really moves in response to what you see uh, with auction results or with private sale results, right? So our market moved up and down based on the mantle results or other auction results. I do think, you know, ultimately the power of crowds, the wisdom of crowds should supersede that of one, what one person's willing to pay for an asset at auction. And so I, I love that answer. I think that's, that's spot on. I think ultimately once liquidity develops, I'm sure every platform is working hard on that. I also agree that I think fractional will be looked at as a leading indicator of collectible 
volatile prices, just like the stock market is often considered to be mm -hmm. a leading indicator of what's happening in, you know, in, in the macroeconomic climate. So I love that answer, and I, I, I totally agree with that. Good stuff, Ezra. Uh, Rob, what about you? Get bold. Man, they took my they took my answer. I think that uh, I think everybody touched on it, but the idea of a one to one, where I think auction houses will always exist, but I think the one to one idea of this this is what sets the prices, what the price is, is going to be flipped by thousands of individuals who know it just as well, if not better, than those collectors. But doing it at retail is going to really be what what prices individual assets. I think those same people will be their own underwriters at a certain point. If you have an asset that asset that's meaningful, putting it through the black box and turning it into a security is something that's going to be way way easier in the future, and you'll be able to sort of go to your own micro community to sell it. I think the one thing that we're starting to see now is that the big players have obviously, and I say big players, I'm talking about the, the bigger banks and the you know JP Morgans of the world and a few others. We're looking at this space right now as sort of an add-on to a product that already exists. I think what we'll see in the future is that you're going to have the brands who aren't fintech and aren't finance, the LVMHs of the world, the Disneys, they're going to find a way to get into this space in a more meaningful way, where whether it's through archives or minting the one-ofs and doing something from scratch, they're going to be able to provide that access to their most meaningful clients clientele, whether that's high value, low value, big ticket, small ticket price, everyone's going to have the ability to own moments. I think it's impossible for regular brands outside the finance space to not look at that in the very, very near future. And I'm talking like a year and a half, two years out, you're going to have more than half the stock market be run by retail investors at some point very soon. There's no reason that big brands wouldn't start to take focus and say, mm -hmm. we need to open this up to our most loyal customers and give them equity in the things they care about. Bold stuff. All right, before I let you guys go, let's get whimsical. Let's get fun. Let's get silly. Uh, Evan, your dream item to fractionalize as a person and as a masterworks dude, what's one thing that you would want a piece of for yourself and what's one thing you want to be able to put on your company's platform? I would love to have both personally and on the platform just a knock your socks off Willem de Kooning. Um, this mm. is an artist that I um, uh, that I love a lot. There's not a lot of them. An early Willem de Kooning, one of his you know prominent from the Woman series or one of his great abstract works. And look, the, the interesting thing about this is our our investors. It, it, I don't know how driven by the actual object or the aesthetics of it are but as we're interviewing more of our investors and learning one one thing we are discovering is they're going on this great knowledge journey mm. so most of our investors start out not knowing who the artists are but once you have exposure or you're invested in something it, you start to go on this knowledge journey whether it's with a mickey mantle card or whether it's with you know uh, you know fractionalized automobile or a work of art you start to want to understand both the market the artist and and we think we're going to uh, mint a lot of new collectors here, ultimately. Ezra, same question. What do you want a collectible and what do you want in your portfolio? Well, I would say, you know, I mean, the, the holy grail right now in sports collectibles has to be the Mickey Mantle 52 tops PSA 10. There are three of them in the world, you know, and oh. so I, I think that would be an incredible piece for for the public to be able to co-own and also an incredible piece, you know, for the sports collectibles universe to have out in the open and, and to see what the real price of that is. So I'll, I'll go simple. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll ride the coattails of, of recent headlines and I'll say a Mickey Mantle 52 tops PSA 10. What was Rob, it? A nine point five that just sold. What, what was it? A nine point five. Yeah, this was. Uh, it was an SGC nine five, wow. and uh, sold sold for twelve. I believe twelve point six million. Twelve point six. Twelve point six, baby. All right, Rob. Final word. Take us home. Your dream item on rally, and your dream item at the Petrozo household. 
they one of the same. I would say that the the dream, and this is a lot. This would be for our users, for me personally, would be a slight, a small slice of the Yankees. Oh, I love that. A piece of a professional sports team, particularly the Yankees, which is this this you know, it's the be all end all when it comes to sort of sports and the pinstripes that go with it is something that as a New Yorker, just it's unavoidable as a thing you want. But it's it's there's obviously hurdles to get to that point to fractionalizing a piece of a team and how it trades. But then the second piece of that would be if you look at like the same thing, the romantic idea of New York, like the Upper East Side townhouse has been like the trapping of wealth forever, taking something like yeah. that and turning it into like something that everybody can own and it's something that's just one of those you know honus wagner style has never sold for less than it was purchased for assets it's one of those things that i've always looked at as sort of like the quintessential new york thing that i would love to own personally that just it seems like it will always be out of reach but hopefully one of these days we can get one on rally this was informative interesting fun i thought i knew my fractional stuff i did not know my fractional stuff now i know my fractional stuff hopefully everybody listening will indeed will get their fractional on uh go visit masterworks.io go download the rally app download the collectible app download the masterworks app uh evan beard from masterworks absolutely mean from collectible rob petrozo from rally thank you so so much Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, guys. Whether it's a 1986 Michael Jordan Fleer rookie card, a Tom Brady playoff contenders rookie card from 2000, or, I don't know, a Marv Throneberry card that came out of a post cereal box in 1963, and yes, that's a thing, Certified Sports Guarantee will grade your sports cards quickly and accurately. A subsidiary of Certified Collectibles Group, CSG graded over 1 million cards in its first year plus on the sports collecting scene, the fastest any grading company has hit that mark. The speedy turnaround times provided by the knowledgeable, passionate team of expert sports card graders will make your CSG experience smooth, efficient, and most importantly, fair. Regardless of the athlete, the sport, or the condition of your card, CSG will treat it with the love and respect it deserves. For more information about CSG, visit csgcards.com. That's CSG, your go-to sports card grading company. We hope you enjoyed Collect This, powered by CSG. Collect This was hosted, written, produced, engineered, and scored by Alan Goldscher. If you have any comments or questions, please email us at collectthis at csgcards.com.